we have been seeing God's glory, his beauty, as he's revealed himself in the book of the Twelve. It's one of the least familiar parts of scripture. These 12 books were originally contained on one scroll, bound together in one scroll, and they are often referred to as the minor prophets, and minor because their length is relatively short compared to the major prophets, the long-writing prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. We've seen that these minor prophets, these prophets who write relatively short books, we've seen that they powerfully display God to be a God of jealous love. That's what we learned in Hosea. Or a God of powerful restoration. He can restore what the locusts have have destroyed. Joel, he is a God of just judgment. Amos. Sadly, most people are unfamiliar with the book of the Twelve. They're intimidated by it. They read it, and it sounds just like judgment, judgment, judgment. And truly, there is a lot of judgment. Yet these books should be books that we treasure because they reveal to us our God. They're especially what we need when we're struggling, when we've failed, when we feel like God is distant. We need these books because God is speaking to people who sense he's distant. When our hope is running thin because we say, God, I've been trying to be faithful to you, but everything around me seems to be collapsing. When our hope's running thin, we need the minor prophets. We need the book of the 12. And today we're feeding on God's words through Obadiah. Let me just introduce Obadiah by describing a few remarkable things about him. First, Obadiah is speaking a message of God's judgment on Edom. E-D-O-M. This is Israel's neighbor to the southeast. You would hit the capital of Edom if you drove about 100 miles south of Jerusalem. Its northern tip was right at the Dead Sea. So if you go south of the Dead Sea, you're in Edom. Obadiah spoke this message of judgment about Edom, but there is no indication that Obadiah ever traveled to Edom to speak the message directly to the people. Instead, it seems that he was speaking a message of judgment about Edom to God's people living around Jerusalem. Further, there is almost nothing we know about Obadiah. We know his name. Ovad, Yah means servant of the Lord. We don't know when he lived. We don't know when he wrote. There are two major speculations. More recently, Old Testament scholars believe that he may have prophesied around the time that Babylon decimated the southern kingdom. So maybe around 600 BC. I tend to agree more with scholars of the last generation and before who say he was actually living probably 200, 250 years before that, soon after the fall of the kingdom, because there would actually be a few times that Edom would partner with Israel's enemies to decimate them. 
It actually happened in the reign of Jehoram. It's described in 2 Chronicles 21 in 840 BC. And I'm inclined to think that Obadiah was prophesying judgment on Edom, Israel's treacherous neighbor who would help Israel's enemies ruin Israel. I think Obadiah is writing earlier, probably around 840 or 850 BC. Certainly it's going to apply when Edom again, around 600, helps Nebuchadnezzar destroy Israel. It will apply then, but I think Obadiah is writing sooner. Another reason I believe that is because I think that the the minor prophets or the book of the 12 are generally grouped according to chronology. You have the prophets who prophesied before the exile, that's called pre-exilic. You have the prophets then who, who spoke during the exile, those are considered exilic prophets. And then you have prophets who spoke after the exile, post-exilic, so pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic. And I think that the ordering of this book of the 12 falls generally into those categories. So I think Obadiah is grouped with the books or the prophecies that he is grouped with in terms of his chronology. All that to say, we know very little about Obadiah except this really interesting fact that he spoke a message about people to a different group of people. We're going to read Obadiah. It's only 21 verses. I'm going to give occasional explanations as I read, but once I finish reading, we're basically going to go right for application and apply the message in three ways to us. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Again, this is the name of the nation to the southeast. It actually gets its name from Esau, Jacob's brother. And you'll see, even if you look at just the headings in your Bible, that Edom is characterized by arrogance and violence. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up! Let's rise up against her for battle! Behold, Edom... I will make you small among the nations. You'll be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling. Petra, out of which come very famous pictures, is actually right in the heart of Edom. You who live in the clefts of the rocks, you who think the rocks are going to be your fortress. You, middle of verse 3, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I'll bring you down, declares the Lord. I think Jeremiah echoes this prophecy against Edom a couple centuries later in Jeremiah 49. He preaches almost the exact same thing. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, Oh, how you've been destroyed. Wouldn't they not only steal enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, wouldn't they leave some gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. One translation, the New Living Translation just says, every nook and cranny is going to be searched out and looted. Every treasure is going to be found and taken. This is not going to be like a thief who runs into the house, grabs the valuables, and leaves 90% of the stuff. No. 
It's going to be complete decimation. Verse 7, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding or you'll have no idea when your allies turn on you. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men, you might think special ops, they're going to be dismayed, O Teman. This is a region of Edom that's named after Esau's grandson. Your special ops forces are going to have no clue what to do so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter because of the violence you did to your brother Jacob, referring to Israel. Shame is going to cover you. You're going to be cut off forever. On that day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off Israel's wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for the plunder, how, who's going to get what from Jerusalem? You were just like one of them. History does indicate that when Nebuchadnezzar with his Babylonian army finally crushed Jerusalem, Edom did break her covenant, her treaty with Israel, and helped Babylon kill Jews and raid the temple. Obadiah says, verse 12, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Don't rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Don't boast in the day of distress. Don't enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Don't gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Don't loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Don't stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Don't hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. Seven times Obadiah refers to Judah's calamity when she fell to her enemies. And the Lord commanded Edom, do not take part in this. Edom disobeyed. For, verse 15, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, Edom, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you've drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They'll drink and swallow my judgment, is the idea. And they'll be as though they had never been. You'll disappear from history, is the idea. But in Mount Zion, that's a reference to Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy again, set apart for the Lord. And the house of Jacob shall return and reclaim their possessions. The house of Jacob will be like a fire, the house of Joseph like a flame, and the house of Esau like stubble. They'll burn them and consume them. There'll be no survivor left for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah, the land of the Philistines, they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead, the exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the Canaanites' land as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Now, reading those last two verses, you might be like totally confused. You might be like, wait, what is he saying? If you don't know ancient geography, let me summarize it for you. It's very, very simple. Essentially, Obadiah is speaking God's word saying, 
My people, Israel, are going to possess all of the land that's now dominated by their enemies. To the south, that's Shephelah or the Negev. To the west, that's Philistia. To the north, that's Ephraim. To the east, that's Gilead. North, east, southwest, my people are going to rule in all of the lands that their enemies now rule. In verse 21, saviors, or those who lead God's rescued people, are going to go up to Jerusalem to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. I've pointed this out every time that we have studied this book of the Twelve, that prophets in the ancient world were a bit like political commentators. They are exposing national and international corruption. And they're also predicting the destinies of nations. You are going to fall because of the choices that characterize your country. Through Obadiah, God tells Edom, this is Israel's arrogant and violent neighbor, that they might seem strong now, but they're going to be completely destroyed. They might help to destroy Israel, but Israel is eventually going to rule. God's people are eventually going to own all of the territory that their enemies now own. In fact, history indicates that there are no Edomites, or what they were in the first century, Idumeans, there are none after the temple is destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Edom is gone from history. And yet, God's people, both ethnic Israel and true Israel, those who are Abraham's children through faith, they remain and are growing still today. The way I'd state the main point of Obadiah is like this. Although the enemies of God's people seem to be winning now, they won't always. God will eventually rule as king on earth. Although the enemies of God's people seem to be winning now, they won't always. God will eventually rule as king on earth. As the book ends, the kingdom will be the Lord's. God will reign over a world that he has set entirely right. We need this message today. This message was preached to God's people Israel about Edom to encourage them. And I want to apply the message of Obadiah to all of us to encourage us about how God is going to deal with three horrific enemies of ours. First, persecutors may seem to be winning now, but they won't always. This is the most direct application of Obadiah to us, dealing with personal enemies of God's people. Maybe you are very aware this morning that there are enemies outside, enemies without. Maybe you keep up with publications like The Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors. Maybe you're aware that the report from Open Doors was summarized earlier this year indicating that persecution against the church is getting worse. Christianity Today summarized it in January 
Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. Every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. 309 million Christians are living in places with very high or extreme levels of persecution. These would be places like North Korea, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Nigeria, India, Egypt, China, Vietnam. And the report from Open Doors that CT is summarizing says that is up from 260 million in 2020's list. In one year, several countries have moved into the the categorization of very high or extreme levels of persecution that they inflict on Christians. The report continues, nine in ten Christians killed for their faith were killed in Africa, the rest in Asia. Nigeria led the world, killing 3,530 Christians. Abductions of Christians rose to 1,710 And Nigeria tops that list as well, with 990 abductions in that country. Pakistan led the world in forced marriages, with about 1,000 Christians married to non-Christians against their will. China arrested, jailed, or detained without charge 1,147 Christians for faith-related reasons. Out of a total of 4,277 abductions worldwide... Meanwhile, attacks and forced closures of churches numbered 4,488 worldwide, with the vast majority of those recorded in China. God's people today have enemies. Heavy persecution, increasing persecution in our world. And if you're very aware of these realities, you need Obadiah. We need to treasure Obadiah. Obadiah announced in verse 1, God has declared battle against your enemies. We need that. Obadiah announces in verse 10, because of the violence that you've done to God's people, shame will cover you. You need to hear that God has declared that against your enemies and his enemies. God's enemies may seem to be winning today, but they won't always win. Look again at Obadiah verse 15. The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. You'll be repaid for what you've done. In verse 21, the kingdom will be the Lord's. Things are not going to always go as they are presently. Persecutors may seem to be winning now, but they won't always. Second point, false teaching may seem to be winning now, but it won't always Maybe you're aware of the enemies inside the church. Maybe you're aware that evangelicalism in America is dominated by what's called the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. The teaching that basically God blesses those who follow Jesus with the American dream. A few years ago, Kate Bowler wrote a book called Blessed, A History of the American Prosperity Gospel. And she reports that one million people in 2011 
were attending American Prosperity megachurches, with the largest of those being Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church in Houston, boasting 38,000 members. Or maybe you are very aware that surveys in 2020 reveal that now a majority of Americans, that is 52% of Americans, believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Or maybe you're aware that evangelical Christians, when asked to evaluate this statement, listen, it is all right for a couple to live together without intending to get married. Nearly half of evangelicals allow for it. Dave Ayers is publishing his new book. It's forthcoming in 2022, Sex and the Single Evangelical. The evangelical church is so shot through with false teaching. People have such wrong views of who Jesus is and what Jesus calls us to do in our lives. Does it seem to you like false teaching is winning? Does it seem to you like satanic deception is just eating away at the church like an acid? We all need a good dose of Obadiah. Satanic deception is something that God, for his own purposes, is allowing for a time, but he will not allow it forever. Obadiah told God's people, That God was allowing Edom to boast for a time and to wreak havoc on his people for a time, but he would eventually bring Edom to justice. And Jesus said something very similar to his disciples. He used the imagery of a farmer allowing an enemy to let weeds grow in his field until the harvest. That's where we're at. Weeds are growing in the field until the harvest time. Deception won't always win. Third, finally, death may seem to be winning now, but it won't always. This is another enemy to whom the prophecy of Obadiah applies. Death. Death is referred to as the last enemy of God's people, and yet, If we apply to it the words of Obadiah, death itself, this enemy, will be cut off and slaughtered. How? Through the resurrection power of Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus beat death. He has the power to rid creation of death. Paul taught the church in Corinth that the risen King Jesus must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus is going to destroy death. There's coming a day when death will be no more. Revelation 21. In the words of one of the greatest English hymns, Jesus died eternal life to bring and he now lives that death may die if you are not a follower of Jesus then the words of God through Obadiah should stand as a warning to you the world is going to be rid of 
everyone and everything that's not submitted to King Jesus. God offers you grace through the king who will reign. That king was crucified in your place, then rose again. You have opportunity for forgiveness and life in his kingdom so that when he reigns, you will reign with him. If you will turn, submit your life to Jesus. The prophecy of Obadiah, and even as I've explained it in terms of its relevance today, it indicates that following the Lord, submitting to the Lord, will not be easy. Persecution comes as part of the package deal. Persecution now, but not persecution forever. Measure twice, cut once. Choose to follow Jesus. It might be hard, but it will be worth it all. If you are a follower of Jesus, then Obadiah's message should lead you in the famous economic words, the motto that you sometimes hear, should lead you to be a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. You should be realistic. You should know that God is allowing your enemies to thrive for a time. And you should be prepared for disappointments. Massive, heavy disappointments. But you should also, underneath it all, have an unshakable hope for the future. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's long-term optimism. You should actually pity the enemies of God's people who think they're strong right now. You should pray for, even work for their conversions. Don't fear them. Don't fear the future. The kingdom will be the Lord's. I just want to end on this note. We're entering the Christmas season of 2021. It is a season that is filled with joy, and it is a season that is filled with heaviness. I'm going to urge you today, if you haven't set any new goals or new traditions, every day of December, you can start today. Listen to the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. Stand in the middle of your living room or in the middle of your kitchen as it blares from your sound system or from your phone. Handle, put to music, Revelation 11.15. It is music that is absolutely thrilling. It is music that is regal. He put together music with Revelation 11.15 that says what I quoted a second ago. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Your Bible may have it if you flip to Revelation 11:15 in the cross-reference. John is alluding to Obadiah 21, the kingdom will be the Lord's. It's a repetition of Obadiah. The hallelujah chorus, in other words, is not merely a beautiful masterpiece of Baroque choral composition. The Hallelujah Chorus is a battle cry. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. If you belong to the Lord, you've committed your life to Jesus, the crucified, risen, and returning king. 
it may seem like you're losing now. You won't lose forever. The kingdom will be the Lord's.